and gentlemen, welcome to Eat, Sleep, Suplex, Retweet. Where do horses sleep? In a stable. And that's exactly what we're going to discuss today. Hi, my name is David Campbell. You may know me from such things as past ESSR episodes. And today we'll be talking about <laughs> the best stables of the 21st century. Don't forget, this is our feature content. It's here every Tuesday, people. And then you can go and join Ross McLeod on a Thursday on ESSR Central. Now, to meet my panel today, we have comprised a very good stable. Now, every stable needs an indie grappler, someone who pride their trade in the independent scene, is a master of technical wrestling and has the fans on his side. In our case, that's Mr Grant McRobbie. Grant, how are you? It's a pleasure to be on. And yeah, I, I like that description. There was no no wide, wide cracks with it, so you know, I'm not going to mention that forbidden thing tonight because I'm going to be <laughs> <laughs> we're, on, we're on good terms, we're on good terms now. We, we, we also need a statistician, we need a numbers man, we need someone who's going to be a, a, admittedly a less talented, a less athletic and a less good looking Dana Brooke, uh, but he is here as Mr David Hockney. Uh, yeah, there's no there's no way I'm matching Dana Brooke in terms of looks, but in terms of uh, tactician and stat- statistical mindset, you know, I've got it all covered. Now, let we also need a, a fucking snake who's going to betray us at the first opportunity. Uh, that's Sarah Grieve here. Uh, <laughs> like the 50 points for Frankie Monet in the draft. She decides to just fucking drop her like a sack of potatoes. What do you have to say for yourself, Sarah? Ah, uh, <laughs> oh, good times. I also, I just got a wee throwback, like a wee deja vu there of obviously the, the first episode of season two of Book It. Um, when you just did the, the Troy McClure things, I, I somehow booked Grado to be the new Troy McClure of Scottish nice. Independent Wrestling. Right, go and check out Book It, now hosted by Mr. Daniel Campbell. And of course, we need a breakout star of the stable, a Batista. Uh, if you see a Roman Reigns, this man has went from strength to strength, podcasts everywhere as far as the eye can see, hosting uh, shows such as East Meets West and maybe, maybe, maybe Saturday Draft Live, Scott McLeod. Maybe, maybe, maybe See? soon. I'll maybe soon. I'll I'll take my place as head of the table at Saturday Draft Live. Oh, very nice, very nice. I like it. Now we're going to be talking about stables. What we need to discuss are the best stables of the twenty first century. But what exactly makes up a good wrestling stable, Grant? I'll start with you. What do you think makes, especially in the modern era, a stable great? A stable to me has to have a a brand. That kind of makes it stand stand out because you know there's that many of them going about these days, especially across the indies. Anyone that can have a brand that can transcend more than one promotion that people will have almost a global recognition to that to me makes a strong modern stable that everyone can get behind. That even non-fans can go, I've heard of them. Yeah, I like that. A strong iconography. And Dave, it's safe to say some of the people that we're going to discuss today have that. But do you think there's more than just that sort of recognisable brand name that Grant's talking about? Yeah, definitely. Because I think what I find is really successful for a stable to have is that everybody in that group needs to be on the same page. You know, they need to be a well-oiled machine uh, with cohesion, you know, a winning mindset. And also, I like how if they when they have well-defined roles. You know, it's not like you're judging them all on their ability to, cl- like, say, I don't know, climb a tree, for example. You know, everybody's going to have their own strengths and weaknesses, but if the common goal is there and they all, you know, bounce off each other brilliantly, that's why I think, makes a very successful stable. 
And Sarah, Dave brings up a good point, like about roles within the stable. Like in the twenty first century, does every stable have to be a Destiny's Child with a, a Beyonce <laughs> clearly above the other two, <laughs> or can they be a One Direction with a, a number of breakout stars? What's your stance on that? I mean, for some of the stables that we're going to talk about, like they, you can have like the One Direction or like a little mix of stables, where it's like all these different ones coming together as a collective unit. Um, and not just like, this is the main guy, this is who we're going to push to the high heavens, um, and the rest of you are just like followers. Um, so no, definitely, definitely there can be there can be both. And this is the thing, Scott, about, we've, we've talked about what makes a great stable, but how do you judge them? Do you judge the stable on the heights they reach, like them in their prime, or did you judge them across the entirety of their run? Do you judge it by longevity? What say you on that? I think maybe the longevity uh, is a big factor because, you know, booking-wise, everybody in the faction has to benefit uh, from being in that faction in some way because more of enough groups are put together because at least a couple of the individuals involved have nothing else going on until they come together. So if you don't, if they don't have anything that makes you memorable going forward and you end up like a social outcast or a group like that that nobody bloody remembers, you know, yeah. you want to be, be around, <laughs> like you said, like you're a... I appreciate uh, your like your Destiny Sailor One Direction comparison. My comparison would be, you know, everybody wants to be successful. You know, everybody like the Golden Girls. You know, everybody wants to be the the Dorothy or even the Rose, but nobody wants to be a Blanche. Thank you for being a friend. Watching, um, <laughs> big, big fan of the Golden Girls theme song over here. Um, but we are going to do what we usually do with these types of shows in part one. Each member of the team will present uh, their option for one of the stables they think is the best of the 21st century. They'll vote among themselves for a winner, and then we'll do the same in part two. Now for the order, people, we're going to bring something over from the draft. Are you ready for it, guys? We have the wheel here, and you know Ooh. what to say. Oh. Do it with me. <laughs> <laughs> Three, two, two, one, one spin, spin that wheel. wheel. No, I'm kidding on. Uh, I decided the order earlier on. Uh, so, Dave, go first. <laughs> 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 just getting our hopes up just to uh, set us up for failure, David. Like <laughs> the wheel there. I know, I missed the wheel too. Uh, but, Dave, your first pick, I'm sure, is going to shock the system. Tell us about it. Yeah, damn right it is. Now, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, the best stable of the 21st century is the team of Roderick Strong, Bobby Fish, Kyle O'Reilly, and the birthday boy himself at time of recording, Adam Cole, baby. Collectively known as the Undisputed Era. Now, what makes these guys the best stable of the 21st century? Well, let me present my case. Point the first. These guys have a ton of indie credibility behind them. You've got Bobby Fish and Kyle O'Reilly recognized as Red Dragon, you know, three-time Ring of Honor World Tag Team Champions. They've uh, competed in New Japan as well. Uh, Adam Cole and Roderick Strong have also had time in Ring of Honor as well. And there was even a time where all four of these guys interacted with each other before even remotely signing with NXT. Like, there was even at one point in 2010 where Cole and O'Reilly teamed together as a team named Future Shock, which is a brilliant name, by the way. And But yeah, they have that indie credibility behind them. The fans of NXT, you know, they're much more diehard fans. So they know who these guys are and they know they've interacted with each other before. So that's already laying the groundwork for a potential, you know, big step up when it comes there. Then when they arrive 
on NXT themselves. They go straight after the NXT champion at the time, who was none other than Drew McIntyre. And you could just tell straight away from the fan reaction that everybody knew who these guys were. Because even just before, you know, times, uh, the time before they signed for NXT, these guys were massive names in the independent circuit. Like, uh, like, and Adam Cole's had history with being in stables before when he was part of the kingdom in 2014 alongside Magic Mike Bennett and a few others. So they they know how to perform as a tag team. They know how to work together uh, with other people. And I think that was a good groundwork for them to come in strong as the Undisputed Era with the trio of Cole, Fish and O'Reilly. Point the second, and again, this goes refer back to why I think makes a very good stable. They have well-defined roles and are all on the same page. So you had Adam Cole, who was clearly the front runner uh, of that stable. You know, he has the the presence of, you know, formerly being a part of the kingdom. He has a former presence of the Bullet Club. So he was already, you know, a master heel on the circuit before even coming to NXT. People knew who this guy was. And to be backed up by two former Ring of Honor alumni in the form of Fish and O'Reilly, I mean, that's, you've already got a great stable right from the off, off with there. Uh, and it always... The way they carried themselves, it was always about them. You know, like Cole was the number one heel in the game, supported by his two his two buddies, who were arguably one of the best tag teams on the independent circuit. And it's it's always about them. You know, they have that winning mentality. They have that common goal of being the most dominant group in NXT. Adam Cole was aiming to be the top guy of the brand, and Fish and O'Reilly were there to be the number one tag team. And they've done that, you know, with three-time NXT Tag Team Championship reigns, and Adam Cole is also there as the longest reigning 403-day title reign as NXT Champion. Definitely the highlight of, you know, uh, a key performer, a leader supported by a tag team. Uh, they did have their ups and downs, obviously. You know, Fish uh, got injured in 2018, but then they just got a, a massive shot in the arm when Roderick Strong, their former Ring of Honor alumni, does a heel turn and that, if anything, just bolsters their rankings. They now have a four-person faction to cover all bases. You know, you've got the main event in Adam Cole, you've got the mid-card with Roderick Strong in the North American Championship, and then you've got Fish and O'Reilly covering the tag teams. And even when Fish was out injured, they had this adaptability. You know, they could use the Freebird rule whenever they wanted to, and they would still form an effective tag team. Like, it was Cole and O'Reilly who won the Dusty Cup, even though Adam Cole had already been in the North American title ladder match at TakeOver New Orleans. So it just goes to show these guys can work, you know, any way possible. Like, Kyle and Roddy as well put on some of the best tag team matches for the tag team titles against a variety of teams, such as Larkin and Birch, the Street Profits, Mustache Mountain and even the Viking Raiders. So plenty of very strong competition from guys who we know to be great teams on the circuit. Uh, there was one point where they held all the gold at one point on NXT. Like, if that doesn't scream dominant faction, like, I don't know what does. Like, it happened with Evolution back in 2003 and they were just on top of the world. So, and that was definitely, I think, was the, high, the highlight of their entire four-year run. And that's another thing. Like, this was a faction that had longevity behind it, because normally a strong stable wouldn't get past maybe two or three years, but this team lasted at least four. And that just goes to show, you know, despite having their ups and downs, they still had longevity. The goal was always there, you know, the, the winning mentality was there and they had each other's backs, you know, and it didn't matter if they were faces or heels, people would always cheer for them. And I think having a stable that has fan support, a common goal, 
and a, a drive to just be the best. That is just, that's what made me fall in love with the Undisputed Era. That sense of brotherhood and the sense of never ending wanting to get to your goals. But I do have one last thing I want to add before I, before I keep quiet. <laughs> uh, one thing I think that really defined these guys from their time in NXT was their War Games legacy. And I think that echoes, you know, what the Four Horsemen did in WCW. War Games was a massive, massive event where, you know, you got the best stars from both sides. You know, you had faces, you had heels. But the Undisputed Era always acted like the final boss of NXT. And War Games was their sort of final battleground where all four of them could compete at once. You know, they may not have won all the time, but if anything, that was just to amplify you know, the sort of heroes versus the villains. And more often than not, they did play the villains, which I don't think anybody really cared, you know, if they won or lost. They just wanted to deliver great matches. And they did that every single time. So it's sort of bringing back, you know, that War Games match from the 90s into the 21st century. That's going to be their main lasting legacy, to know that they are the ones to be inside War Games, you know, for any aspiring NXT talent. And it makes them... Like I said, you know, it makes them feel like the final boss. They're the ones to beat. So that in combination with amazing title reigns, uh, Cole's 403-day title reign in particular, their indie credibility, you know, they've got loads of fans, you know, across multiple promotions. They're master heels, and they all had that same goal about you know, wanting to be the best, wanting to get all the gold, and they each had their own specific roles. Nobody fell out of place. And that is why the Undisputed Era is the best stable of the 21st century. Case closed. Ooh, I don't think you took a breath there, Dave, uh, to be honest with you. But the passion uh, and the argument might just be undisputed. Is it enough to convince your, your fellow members in the panel? Scott, do you agree with most of what Dave's saying there? Undisputed Era deserve to be in this conversation. Yeah, I agree with most of, of what you said. I mean... For me, uh, 2017 onwards, one of the highlights of NXT is watching the Undisputed Era because it did seem like every time they started to cool off and you know, like they didn't have much left for them as a group, they found something new for them uh, to do. And yeah, the war game stuff is a, is a prime point. You know, like they are pretty much they were the four horsemen almost of NXT for a while because the old school war games was all about a team coming together and they like all with a grievance against the horsemen and that was the same thing for Undisputed Era when it came to the, the men's war games matches where it was either a group of faces all rallying together because they were sick of the Undisputed Era or when the Undisputed Era then briefly turned face you had a, a new heel group trying to take their spot and the Undisputed Era trying to re-establish once again why they are the top dogs of NXT and that is it I think part of the, the influence of the four horsemen in their like, group and then holding all the gold, which is again a sign of a successful faction, I do agree with David. It's probably because Triple H is a, was probably a major fan of these guys being the guy behind NXT and he's a fan of that kind of thing, he's been wanting war games to come back for ages. One thing I would argue that kind of goes against Undisputed Era that other factions have is the breakup. And I know technically the breakup is still ongoing with the O'Reilly Cole feud, but like. Adam Cole even admitted recently that they weren't really given that much notice that the Undisputed Era would be breaking up. And so, which really feels like, given they were such a big part of NXT, they should have felt up to their knowing, been given quite a lot of time in advance to work on how they were going to properly break this group up. Because, you know, Cole and O'Reilly, yeah, they're two of them, they've two and a few has been entertaining so far, but like, 
Roderick Strong just buggered off to start his own group and Bobby Fish would probably be more involved if he could if he could stop getting injured because that seems to be he said everyone has their role that seems to be Bobby Fish's role and he's better get injured all the time and occasionally have a tag match so uh, I do I do I agree with a lot of the points David said but I know and I know the goal or other thing is still ongoing but I don't think they, they had a breakup fitting of a faction of their calibre. I think that's a fair enough point. We do have to move on from the UE just now because, Grant, you're, I believe you're going to take us on a trip across the pond for your first pick of the best stable of the 21st century. I am. As the, the one that came in last, I noticed that a lot of the picks had already been taken because as our roles go, no crossover. I've went a little bit deeper and I'm going with Schadenfreude. And I've got a, a well-thought-out case for this one that's a little bit more off-kilter compared to some of the others that you're probably going to hear. So first of all, I'm going to talk about the star power in the group. Now, this group is still technically active, even if all the people are no longer in the same place because of the way the world's taken them. But let's put the star power in here. You've got Chris Brooks with a little shitty wolf kid like us. Jonathan Gresham, who's in Ring of Honor these days. Kyle Fletcher, lucky kid. Mark Davis. The madman Timothy Thatcher, Volter. This group came about together in Fight Club Pro in one of the best run it long running storylines I saw in British wrestling that took place over the course of a year. There was betrayals, they took over shows. Schadenfreude, I mentioned earlier about having a branding. Schadenfreude have their own promotion. They sell out this one little venue in Manchester every single time. Tickets go off in less than a, less than a minute at points. These guys are on the pulse of what gets the indie fans going. And they've all got their own credentials. Brooks is over in Japan these days. We've seen what Volter's doing in NXT UK. Timothy Thatcher's making waves in NXT. Mark Davis and Kyle Fletcher have went back to Australia. Lycos is out of retirement. He's a progress tag team champion. Lucky kids at NXT UK. Gresham's one of the top people in Ring of Honor with the Pure Championship. These guys got... the they got the sort of heel personas down perfectly. They were total bastards. We loved to call them bastards. The outrage that it got. Some of the matches, best example of one of their matches was a year-long story in Fight Club Pro that eventually had Martin Zaki, the owner of Fight Club Pro, turn around going, right, we're going to have to fight you lot. And they had Team Fight Club Pro, which was made up of Clint Margera, Dan Maloney, Jimmy Havoc, don't say that one too loud. <laughs> Martin Zaki and Ricky Shane Page. And they had a death house match, an hour long death match against Schadenfreude, which was made up of Timothy Thatcher, Lucky Kid, Kyle Fletcher, Chris Brooks, and Mark Davis was injured. So they just got El Fantasmo from Bullet Club. No biggie, just one of the biggest up and coming indie stars. But these guys have got a brand in that. If you, if you look on any sort of corner on Twitter, if you look at any part of British wrestling in the last three years, because this, this stable started in 2018, everyone knows who they are. They are undis undisputably one of the best exports that we have brought out from Europe. And even the stuff, I've been to a couple of their shows, the Schadenfreude and Friends shows. Allow, allow me to put you into the madness that these guys have. Like we, we, you know, we always talk about things like comedy wrestling, serious wrestling. I witnessed them do a tournament which was based off the movie Battle Royale. Goat, I'm sure you'll probably appreciate that. I do, I do. 2000, I believe that movie came out. Okay. They, they, they had a, they had a, the final match had Battle Royale rules. 
they cling filmed the entire ring. If the wrestlers didn't get out of the ring at a certain point, their collars exploded. They even had the school uniforms and everything like Balra. It was absolutely hilarious. That sounds incredible. I need to watch this. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's, that's the thing. You can't watch it. That's the magic. You have to be there. There's little clips and that on Twitter and YouTube, but you'll never get a full show. That was part of the fun that, that they made with this whole brand. You had to be there. And it's still to this day, when that comes back, they will sell it instantly. And that that branding, the fact that I have seen them getting mentioned in Japan, in America. They've had tag t- title matches in Germany. They've had tag title matches over here. They've made even some of the best matches that they had stable-wise involved intergender. They weren't afraid to go down that route. Um, Mark Davis and Miko Satamura have battered the living shit out of each other. Nice. They've had the likes of the Lucha Brothers against Chris Brooks and Kyle Fletcher. They just brought dream matches to the table and they always delivered. And this was the best thing about it was these were all guys for the British wrestling scene on the, mo- on the most part. I love what you're saying here, Grant. I love it. And I'm looking at the Schadenfreude um, online shop. Everything's sold out right now, which I believe, you know, speaks to their enduring popularity. But, but Sarah, Grant brought up brands at the start, and I think a lot of our minds went to brands from WWE, maybe back in day, WCW, NWO, you go to Japan. Never the European indie scene would come to mind, but Schadenfreude have made themselves a brand, and that, that's got to speak for something, doesn't it? I mean, absolutely, because like you, you've got guys that have not even just come from the UK. They've come like from literally all over the world, um, and who had made um, British wrestling their home. So, and especially because it's it's one bit. It was just in fact, it was really just in Fight Club Pro. Like you maybe saw them pop up every now and again, but it's like that association would always go to that one promotion. Um, so, but it. It's a definitely it's definitely a good choice because um, as much as like I'm familiar with the majority of the names, I was never really familiar with the actual stable itself. Um, obviously, not knowing that you know Walter and Timothy Thatcher were anywhere near it, because um, obviously we we just sort of knew them um, of, like on the like in the different stable name, um, but yeah, it's. It's actually really, really good to see like different things. It, it, it also not it doesn't validate British lesson because it doesn't need validation from anyone else. But it just shows that it's it's not just every man out for themselves. Um, where you can just get a whole group of guys together that are just going to like wreak havoc on everything. Yeah, I like it. And, and Grant, but but I do have a question for you, and it, it's something you brought up, but. Do you think that a possible weakness of Schadenfreude is the sort of scatterbrain nature of the group? There's other groups that we're going to talk about with sort of cohesive stories together solidly for a good period of time before parting ways. Do you think, is, do you actually think it's maybe a strength for Schadenfreude that they'll never quite die, they'll always find a way to survive? Or do you wish that they had more time to be as a cohesive collective? I think, I think the scatterbrain kind of works with the fact that each of their shows, they put on a kind of different, like, it was schadenfreude of the show, but they could still be against each other within the shows, and they had a whole variety of ideas, and it was all collaboration. It was never one person. Everyone done it as a team, and I think that works for them in the longevity and the fact that, yes, they are apart, 
they are probably going to eventually come back together at some point, just depending on the way things go. I know that Kyle Fletcher and Chris uh, Mark Davis are going to be heading back to the UK later this year to go to Rev Pro. Um, I like the fact that they still represent the stable no matter where they go. I like it. I like it. Big fan, but we know about Schadenfreude. Dave's told us about the Undisputed Era, but Scott, your next stable is a mystery. Full of change that no one sees. Tell us about it. It's at this point that we draw the line in the sand and we definitively talk about the greatest stable of all time. One of the first proper heel groups I remember watching as a young fan, and that is Evolution. And, you know, you talk about, I talked about Triple H's, you know, love of the four horsemen well before he was selling book a version of it and uh and nxt he was trying to make his own version of the four horsemen with rick flair randy orton and batista and you know also putting in the fact that it's probably out of the three motorhead themes that triple h has got potentially the best out of the three the most underrated of the three uh linus and him that's one of the one the ones that lemmy is more coherent in you know just you just have to watch his bloody performance that Mania X7 to know what I'm talking about there. But basically, I know a lot of people, this gets lost in the whole reign of terror of, of Triple H and the World Heavyweight title, but you actually look at that, and while I'm not here to argue whether or not that was a great booking decision throughout that time, I'm talking about Evolution itself, not just Triple H. The start of his reign of terror begins when about a time he starts becoming associated with Ric Flair. And the end of his reign of terror ends, the end of his reign of terror is when Batista beats him at WrestleMania 21. So the beginning and end of his reign to have a purpose and of creation and then the end of evolution and in the middle of it is basically evolution doing everything they can to keep the World Heavyweight Championship on Triple H. The story of Raw for two and a half years was everybody on Raw against evolution. And again, I talked about you know, everybody has to benefit from this. You know, Ric Flair talked in numerous interviews and Triple H has backed back this up that Ric Flair was miserable in late 2002 he thought he was at the tail end of his career he had a horrible end to his WCW and he didn't think he should be there amongst the current crop of, of wrestlers and Triple H kind of encouraged him to join him in this new group and gave a second win to, to Ric Flair and his time in WWE because you can't really talk about Ric Flair's run in WWE in the 2000s without really talking about evolution and you can't really talk about the start of Randy Orton Batista's runs in WWE without talking about them in evolution so that was the whole thing where you had the two up-and-comers, you had the established star, and you had a legend there who was, he didn't wrestle often, but he was there to help guide the careers of the other guys there. And then you had the moment that Dave already mentioned, so thanks for that, Dave, where mm-hmm. Armageddon 2003, Batista and Ric Flair win the tag team titles, Randy Orton beats RVD for the Argonnell title, and Triple H regains the World Heavyweight title, and Evolution you know, holds all the gold, and that is, again, the sign of a successful stable. Uh, and always... Like the and uh, I really should have wrote this down before I started talking. <laughs> well, Scott, I'll give I'll give you some breathing room there because sorry, sorry, I remembered I remembered what I was going to say. Okay, on you go. Yeah, and there was a point I made in today. I talked about in kind of a critical way of the the breakup of Undisputed Era. So I wouldn't obviously come with my argument about it if I wasn't prepared to make a, an argument in defence of their breakup. Because theirs happened in stages. You have, obviously, behind the scenes, it's about Elvie and Randy and Batista and everybody in the group, not just Triple H. But in kayfabe, Triple H pretends that he's trying to help everybody else, but really, it's all about him. It's all about the game, as his theme song would say. And so when Randy Orton gets some success and Randy Orton does what he couldn't do and beat Chris Benoit for the world title, 
Triple H can't hang about less than 24 hours later. He's turning on Randy Orton uh, to get back what says he's kicked out of Evolution. And yeah, you can argue Triple H shouldn't have won the title back so soon, but you know, that was the useful for trying to put Randy Orton as a babyface because it's just not his natural mode. And he was always going to be fine no matter this loss because like six months later, he's fighting Undertaker and he's back on his trajectory, so he was fine. And then you have uh, New Year's Revolution 2005. Everybody seems like, oh, Typical Triple H wins the title again, but they didn't realise they were building to the very end of this reign of terror where you had Batista getting RKO'd by Randy Orton when it was down to Orton, Batista and Triple H. And Triple H gets up, he could help Batista. Ah, no, he just chooses not to. And Batista's not aware of it until Randy Orton points out to him, like, look, Triple H doesn't care about you. Batista wins the Rumble, and then Triple H tries to convince him, well, go to SmackDown and fight, you know, JBL, because he knows that Batista's a threat, but then... Tisa does the thumbs up back to Triple H in a contract scene, puts him through a tail and basically says, I'm coming for you in the world title. And he did what few people got to do at that time. He beat Triple H on pay-per-view, not once, not twice, but three straight times. The third one being inside Hell in a Cell, which was built up as Triple H's match at that time. And then you've got Ric Flair, who, you know, he, was, he wasn't with him often, but, you know, when Randy Orton left, he and, he and Flair had a very underrated cage match at every Tuesday 2004. And then Triple H goes away after his third loss to Batista, comes back and says he needs to cut all ties with Evolution, which includes battering the shit out of poor old man Ric Flair. And then they, t- they go on to have two further underrated matches at Tyra Tuesday and Survivor Series 2005, respectively. And then that was the official end of Evolution. And you look at uh, the career, I mean, this is guys that were specifically chosen because they were the right people for that group. Because I know there's all the stories about Mark Jindrak and Triple H made the right decision because that group would not be the same without with Mark Jindrak in there. I mean, I couldn't exactly see Mark Jindrak going on to be part of Guardians of the Galaxy as Drax the Destroyer. So, you know, but he's the... Mark, Mark Jindrax? Perhaps, <laughs> you can see. <laughs> ah, banter. Uh, so, yeah, really, the success of Orton, the success of Batista, both in ring and Batista's Hollywood success to an extent, I think can all be pinned back to to this time with, uh, with Evolution. So... All the guys involved benefited from it in a way, and it left their impact even years later. I think. Yeah, I think it's a strong argument, Scott and Dave. Scott is basically drawn a direct comparison between, like you said, Evolution and Undisputed Era. Do you think mm-hmm. that the the cohesion of Evolution's story, like Scott's laid out from beginning to end, do you think that's the strength of this faction? Do you think that perhaps gives it an edge in this argument? See, it's kind of hard to say, really, because. I think in the case with Evolution, and I think Scott actually mentioned this himself, it was really more about, you know, making sure that Triple H was the top guy. And, you know, Orton and Batista, you know, were sort of recruited as henchmen rather than, you know, somebody like two guys who would then grow on to be sort of main event talent in their own right. You know, obviously Orton breaking out on his own, uh, you know, with that really cringy sort of face run at the second half of 2004. But I think the cohesion there and, you know, the sheer monopoly of wanting to capture every title on Raw, like they did at Armageddon 2003, that was definitely a peak point for Evolution. But they did get off to a rocky start, though, because I think Orton and Batista both got injured in February 2003, which is when the group was announced. So for the majority of that year, it was mostly just Triple H and Flair with Orton coming back around sort of May time and Batista didn't show up again until about six months later. So it was not the best of starts for the faction, but I think when 2003, 2000, and, well, the end of 2003 came around, that's when they sort of, you know, found their rhythm. And 
But again, even though it was about a year and a half later, that's when they all dissolved. You know, everybody sort of went off and did their own thing. But the big benefit of this is they actually created two brand new main event talent, both Hall of Fame caliber superstars at the same time. Yeah, 100%. And, well, I think we've had enough people, you know, try to make their arguments and all that, to be honest with you. I think it's time for a nice wee advertisement. And it's definitely not a cult. It's it's 100% not a cult. <laughs> uh, but, Sarah, do you want to tell us why we should maybe, perhaps, join Dark Order? Uh, yeah, well, see... I, I don't know why I didn't go for like the ultimate serious like obvious pick of like the best stable because like they've only been around for like less than two years um which when you think of it is wow it's been two years um, so the reason that I believe that people should join the Dark Order first of all not a cult but it's the development that they have had right so if we're going to take it all the way back all the way back until May 2019, right? Um, on an episode of Being the Elite, it was um, Matt and Nick Jackson basically teasing that they had signed the Super Smash Bros, um, known in the professional wrestling world as who is now Eva Luno and Stu Grayson, it's player Uno and player Dos, um, who are former tag team champions uh, at PWG, as well as combining them eventually with the other other tag team that we've got of um, Reynolds and Suffer, formerly known as the Beaver Boys, which I, I kind of like the fact that they're no longer called the Beaver Boys, um, make it sound a bit silly. But the way that the fact that this stable first emerged to what we see today is probably why I chose them as like one of the, the like the greatest stables of the 21st century so far. Um, so starting out, if you come back to Double or Nothing in May 2019, so just over two years ago, um, Uno and Stu Grayson, they were sort of repackaged and they debuted as the Dark Order. Now you thought it was just them two, they're going to be a tag team, nothing different, just um, the company beginning to build itself up and needing like a heel stable. Uh, at that point, the inner circle hadn't really been... Um, created either, which they were also a good contender for me, but um, after after Best Friends had um, taken on Angelico and Jack Evans, it basically the lights went out and like they were attacked by the, the Creepers as they were known at the time um, and that was obviously due to Uno and Grayson controlling them um, after they appeared at ringside and after um, their debut at Fight for the Fallen uh, in July of 2019, uh, they won like a three-way tag team match to advance straight to All Out to get a first round bye in the tag team title tournament when they, they eventually lost. Like, they eventually lost to the, the overall winners um, of SCU. Um, and that was like sort of big, the beginning of the Dark Order journey. Um, where vignettes started airing um, when you had some some weird spokesperson. <laughs> I still find them quite creepy, but um, this is when it started. You're like, right, okay, this is clearly a cult because in proper playing up to um, brainwashing from watching TV, this is how, like what they used. It's like the power of doing that. Um, Alex Reynolds was communicated to via hotel television telling them 
that you know he keeps failing and that to join the Dark Order to be successful. So not too long after John Silver and Alex Reynolds joined the Dark Order. Um, and this is when they kept talking about uh, an exalted one who we didn't know who was going to be at the time. And carrying on, it was more trying to recruit people, again, very much like a cult, um, where they tried to get Christopher Daniels, they've tried to get um, Sammy Guevara, they've tried to get loads of people. Um, and... When Mr. Brody Lee made his debut for All Elite Wrestling, he was revealed as the Exalted One. Um, and this is when you realise that like, this is this is kind of legit. They've like Brody Lee had only just left WWE at this point. He had made his surprise debut with All Elite Wrestling, who we all thought Matt Hardy was going to be the Exalted One when it turned out to be Brody Lee. Um, but he also brought all these wrestlers that were known for the squash matches, the dark matches, uh, being the jobbers, etc. Um, and this is when he brought in Alan Angels and he brought in uh, a fairly unknown wrestler as well that looked to sort of be like the big guy, his favourite in Preston Vance. Um, and the thing added on to the fact that they are clearly at this time a cult because they keep naming people as numbers. Um, they had also had Colt Cabana join the ranks after he went on a big massive losing streak. Um, Anna J was brought in as, you know, number 99. And she wasn't particularly on a massive losing streak. She was actually a fairly new wrestler who had been debuting. Um, and she was, like, at that time, the star of the show, Anna J. And now she's a very fierce, confident woman inside the Dark Order. Unfortunately, she's injured. Um, so. Bringing all these people in, you're like, right, clearly a cult, <laughs> clearly, <laughs> clearly a cult. They're just trying to like get all these people in, um, and you can see them on various things of being the elite, trying to recruit people, trying to recruit people, um, fairly much. And they were like the most hated stable. You would have them getting creepers attacked, um, trying to just get all all these people to join the dark order. Brody Lee had. A fantastic rivalry with uh, Cody Rhodes uh, in the lead up to his final matches, uh, winning the TNT cha- Championship and then losing it, and then obviously passing away. Um, and this is this is when the, the big development of the Dark Order happened, and this is essentially the face turn that they never really expected to happen. Um, mainly because obviously there was a lot of tribute shows to. Um, Brody Lee and then they named their new leader as Brody Lee's son because they're known as numbers he became negative one instead of basically zero um, and then in the more later later times um, it was one of Brody Lee's last wishes um, was to try and recruit Hangman Adam Page after the biggest storyline that's been in the making since before all of even hit the TV stations um, and this is when they sort of developed into the big family and the friends and they were just like wanting to have a good time and just like being proper chill about everything as well as being extremely popular moving through to being the elite um, and then eventually this past week on Dynamite standing up to Kenny Omega and saying that they know one person who can take him on and beat him because they have belief um, and that's why I picked the Dark Order as being 
like one of one of the top stables of the 21st century just because you've seen a, a massive progression but there is one big unit um, and no man is bigger than like each other you've got two different tag teams you've got one singles wrestler um, that does fairly well from time to time and then Alan Angels which you all need someone to pick on it's basically let's throw shit at Kevin and he's the Kevin <laughs> of the group <laughs> fair enough, fair enough. And, but the thing is, I was actually, it's interesting you brought up Dark Order because, Grant, I was listening to, it was Ross Quiddell's show in Cultaholic, uh, Straight to Hell. He had an interview with Evo Uno recently. And Uno was talking about the sort of organic face turn of the Dark Order and how they had a really rough and rocky start and it didn't seem like the group was getting over at all. But slowly over time and obviously tragically bolstered perhaps by the death of Brody Lee, the Dark Order, when, when fans are back in full swing and AEW is going on tour, they're going to be the most one of the most popular acts in that company. And I know Sarah's saying it's, it might not be the most serious choice, but I'd argue right now might be the most popular faction in all of wrestling. I Hard to argue that they're, like in, in that regard, they are possibly the most popular thing going right now. Um, even if they did rip off Schadenfreude for that, it's not a cult thing. Sorry, we said it first. <laughs> <laughs> Fair. But the, yeah, like, like, like Dark Order did. Uh, my argument against them would possibly be that rocky start at the beginning and how early they still are in their lifetime. But they did overcome that life, like that, that bit. I was still a fan of them at the beginning, even with the dodgy beginnings. Yeah, get that ring Stephen Wilson. Same. We were right in the long run. Join yeah. the Dark Order, yeah. Brad. Get up. I said it day one. Join the Dark Order. I said it. I agree. Guys, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I just say about Dark Order, and I agree with many of the points that has made about them. And yeah, obviously, myself, along with all of you, your opinions obviously changed about them. And I know they're not a cult. If they were a cult, you know, the way they've recruited members as a cult might do, you know, when everybody's at their lowest and then they've benefited from being in the cult, to be convinced that they will benefit being the cult, but they're not a cult, but if they were, they would do very similar things to as they have done as they've recruited people, like people who are on losing streaks. But yeah, I know and I know we're on it in the second half we're gonna mention a couple other factions that are really still going and much like Dark Order and the most recent faction of this first half, because you know, Ms. Beauty recently broken up and Jarfire aren't doing much now and Evolution's been broken up for years. But I think I'd argue uh, that the peak of Dark Order is yet to come, which is why maybe if we were doing this show a few years from now, there would be a share of winning this first half. But I think the peak is still to come with Hangman eventually winning the title and being the main guy in Dark Order, but they're still building to Hangman getting the comments to accept and face Kenny Omega. So I'd argue the peak of Dark Order is yet to come. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, we'll need to see. We'll need to see what happens with that. But it's time to decide our winner for the first half of this show, and you must vote for someone else, people. You can't vote for yourself. I did it in every school election, but you can't do it for yourself. That's what they say. Um, so, Grant, I'm going to give you the first vote. Who are you voting for? I'd say this has torn me greatly, but despite the rocky start, the fact that they are doing so well, and I'm, I love them to bits. I'm back in the dark order. Grant is joining the Dark Order. What see you, Scott McLeod? Well, if I had to pick one faction other than mine, the only reason I didn't choose this faction is because I knew it would mean a lot to Dave to argue for them, so I'm going with Undisputed Era. Yeah. Undisputed Era for Mr. Hockney. Mr. Hockney, we come to you. Who are you backing? Mm. See, I wasn't too sure about uh, some of the first half picks, but I think... 
Oh, cheers. <laughs> well, <laughs> well, pure, well purely, because, purely because I think they argued a good case about them also being a brand as well as a stable. You know, sometimes it doesn't work, but I think in this case it has, and particularly when it comes to European and British exports. So in that case, I would say Schadenfreude. Oh, Fusina. It's on you. Oh, yeah. You a four-way tie. What are you going to do? I mean... Make it difficult for Campbell. Make it a tie. Fuck him. <laughs> well, see, funny that you mentioned that, Scott, because um, I remember on our Rushmore of uh, tag team wrestling that nobody wanted, um, you know, my my choice of Red Dragon to be on it. So just to fuck Dave over, what? <laughs> just because oh. I am that level of petty. Oh uh, yeah, that's that's ridiculous pettiness. <laughs> like, why are you taking a? Yeah, you're being <laughs> with a bloody Dave. Dave, Dave let Let's see the vote, please. <laughs> With all fairness, I was a very big fan of the Evolution Stable at that time. Um, so, like, that is the reason. And also because I can't vote Dark Order. And me and Grant were the original Dark Order people of this podcast. Um, that I... I yeah, I, I, I'm, I would go with the evolution, but just because, not because ah. not, not I'm petty, but maybe because I'm a little petty. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, no, I like evolution uh-huh. as well. So for once, the almost straight white man is in charge. Hmm, let me see. <laughs> <laughs> what, what, what shall we do? Um, I think... Come on, Campbell, uh, shock the system here. I think that someone made a good argument for theirs. Sarah, Dark Order, great, big fan of them right now. Grant, you argued Schadenfreude is a brand, um, and what they were doing. Dave, really good argument for the Undisputed Era. I need to give it to Evolution. I just think that in terms of the longevity of the story, the way it played out, the way that it did what it set up to do from day one to day end, I just think that they were the best of that time period so commiserations to the other three but scott mcleod <laughs> with evolution takes this half of the show in a really I sort of tight well david campbell you talk about the longevity they only lasted for three fucking years <laughs> only they came back in twice as long that's, that's, <laughs> i was gonna say that's long for a wwe staple you've got to think yeah. about that your longevity wins pish years I even I didn't even mention the fact that it came back in 2014 as well. Listen, if I lasted for three years, many people would be happy and probably dead. Uh, but anyway, here's what the fans said. Context, um, about, David, context. About, about, their, about <laughs> the, who they thought were the best stables of the 21st century. Alan McLucas said The Shield, uh, backed up by Stephen Wilson as well. I wonder if they will come up later on. We will need to see. Uh, Stephen Wilson also putting out a pick with the Wyatt family there, led by Bray Wyatt, Eric Rowan, Braun Strowman and the late, great Luke Harper in that stable. Not brought up on our show, but I think worth a mention, great matches with the Shield um, swing to mind for me. Um, so that's a good one. Al McLucas backs Evolution. Also, Jack Graham says that the New Day uh, are the best stable of the 21st century. It's hard to argue there, but they fall in that awkward category between tag team and stable. But I think maybe they haven't got a fair crack on either of our shows about that the last couple of weeks. So, yeah, see what you will. Uh, Dave, Gary Kernahan agrees with you. And if I'd seen that before I yeah, cast my Gary. vote, I would have won part one. Because uh, who, would, who would argue um, with uh, the human sex god just, that is Gary Kernahan? Just um, timing and not reading your messages. That's uh, that's why the <laughs> era fails, because nobody cares to check up on them. 
<laughs> Chris Murray uh, says the heart business. He's putting the heart business out there, and you have to say for their short time, we're one of the highlights of Raw. But that's like being the the least smelly part of a shit to be fair um, Tom Brock <laughs> says Bullet Club um, so we'll see if Bullet Club come back up Gordon Bollock Gordon Bollock says uh, the inner circle uh, he's back in Le Champion Chris Jericho and Cole he says anyway he said Shield New Day and Undisputed he said he can code the heart business if they didn't have that season 8 Game of Thrones level of bad endings uh, and Sarah Grieve has <laughs> Also posted a joint dark order gif in the chat, uh, so <laughs> just to, just to try and get. I some totally extra did not do that there. just now. <laughs> oh no, I, I seen it come up. I seen the notification, but Sarah, for that, you went last in the last round. All right, it's time for you to go first in part two. What are you going to do? Are you ah. going to give a big shot here to the head? Bang bang. Bang, bang, baby. Yes, I am. So, basically, the the other stable that I picked, um, much to the chagrin of Graham McGrawy when he joined, which, you know, it was, you know, we picked first, you came in after, just so just so you know, by the way. Um, but my, my pick for being the uh, one of the best stables of the 21st century um, has got to be Billet Club slash The Elite. Um, so when I'm talking about like obviously you've got the elite of Kenny Omega and the Young Bucks, um, but then we've had different variations of Bullet Club over the years, stretching from the OG um, Prince Devitt all the way through to the current carnation with um, the likes of Switchblade, Kenta, um, as well as the Gorillas of Destiny. Um, so this is why I picked them as being one of the best stables of the 21st century. Yes, in terms of um, backstabbing and, you know, power hungriness and whatnot, it's been a very long running stable. Um, so when when you think about it, it was originally put together all the way back in 2013, right? And it's still continued, even though it's had different variations. You've had God knows how many leaders over the time um, I'm going to attempt to remember every single one of the leaders um, that we've had. Um, so you've had AJ Styles as being a, an actual leader. Adam Cole was never an actual leader of Bullet Club. He was only really there, um, especially when the it sort of joined forces with, with, with Ring of Honor. Um, as much as people think Alan Cole was actually a leader, it was more the US face of it. Um, and you've had, carrying on down the line, you've had Kenny Omega, kind of Carl Anderson, and you've had Prince Devitt, obviously being the OG of the OGs. Um, and when you look at like the, the former members, so I'll run down some former members of the actual Bullet Club as well, from the incarnation to... Um, the current Bullet Club that we've got here. So, for some reason, and I don't know why, Jeff Jarrett was apparently part of Bullet Club. Um, I, I'm pretty sure Scott and Grant can maybe confirm that later on um, of what they thought about that. It's part of his retirement um, scheme. Pesh. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> but you've had you've had sort of people like Scott Demore was. A honorary part of Bullet Club, Stephen Amell, my one, my one and only true bay, you know, joined Bullet Club for a wee helping hand after you know his his 
lovely romance with Cody Rhodes um, starting back in WWE. Um, you've had Hangman Adam Page is a former member of Bullet Club. Again, that ties into his storyline currently with AEW um, being brought in by the Young Bucks. You've had Cody Rhodes. You've got people like, obviously, Adam Cole, Cody Hall, and Frankie Kazarian even jumped in on there at some point as well. But when you come and have a look at like the current members, so even from like from the start, obviously you've got the Gorillas of Destiny, part of the OG members. You've got Bad Luck Fally uh, at the moment, El Fantasmo, very popular uh, wrestler at the moment. Obviously just done a couple of shows with Impact uh, before going back to Japan. You've got Kenta, you've got Hikuleo, obviously the younger brothers. Um, of the Gorillas of Destiny, Dick Togo, which I don't like to talk about Dick Togo, um, but he's obviously joined with Evil after Evil defecting from LIJ, um, and the current leader, Jay White, uh, Yuju Takahashi, which obviously, who doesn't love a pimp? I was waiting, I was sort of hoping for a laugh there, I was like, who? I, I, would just, I just want to give you the honour to mention, because you mentioned him, he was in a tag team with Hangman, and they were called Dick and Balls. <laughs> I forgot about that. I'm not gonna lie, I forgot about that. Listen, I listen. About... <laughs> Happening easy. We know that for a fact. Um, <laughs> but yeah, like I'm I'm sitting here like naming members, but they've been like the sort of biggest faction in all of Japan, kicking back all the way from the start. Um when Prince Devitt was just like, No, we're like the outsiders, we are this new big bad force. And this is obviously the faction that gave Kenny Omega one of the biggest spotlights, um, obviously carrying him through the trio of great matches with Okada. Um, at this time, I, I don't know, I can't remember if he was the actual leader when he won the G1. Um, I don't know, Grant, can you confirm? Which one was that again, again sorry? Nah. Uh, when Kenny won the G1, was he leader of Bullet Club at that time? Yes, he was. Yes. Yeah, he was um, leader from November 2014 to October 2018. There you go, and again, quite a long-running leader for the majority of his uh, majority of the time that Bullet Club's been kicking on. Um, and then when they brought the, they had the Young Bucks, and obviously they they sort of thought that they were the the more pristine, the better people of Bullet Club. Obviously, when you've got Cody Rhodes and <clears throat> Marty Scurll, uh kicking around that. They, they think that they're better. And this is when you broke off to the elite. And this this faction of the elite is what brought us to AEW in the first place. Like it is the elite's brand. Um, and this is why I think because they've they've branched out not only from the longevity of the actual faction being the one of the biggest heel factions, if not the biggest heel faction uh, in all of like Japanese wrestling bringing it over to the UK, being the popular with Ring of Honor, having like the different things and the kicking people out the bullet clubs like kicking AJ or killing Adam Cole or different like different things of how to kick people out of being the leader of Bullet Club. Um or even like the Grails of Destiny taking it back from the elite um and basically kicking them out when AEW is starting to today um when you have the elite being the really, really obnoxious heels that are... I think Matt and Nick are just trying to make you hate them at this point with, like, the flamboyant gear or, like, the really bad mutton chops. Like, it's just like, you know what? 
we're going to do whatever we can to make you hate us and that's good because at this time they're trying to put other people over in their company um, and that's in what <laughs> what are they trying to do sorry they are trying to put people over in their company but they were they have mutton chops at the moment i don't know if you've been watching uh, AEW lately. <laughs> um, uh, I have seen that. I just, I just <laughs> young bucks putting people over is a bit foreign to me. But we continue. Sorry. I to mean, that. they did. They well, you got to give them a little bit of credit because in the original tag team tournament, they went out in the first round to private party, which is not something that any of us expected. So, and private, we all know that they're party, going. Yeah. Private party doing very well so far, and they're not at all. At that time, at that time, they had promise. <laughs> At that time, they had a great deal of promise. Um, yeah. But obviously, they're going to lose the belts to, no doubt, Moxley and Eddie Kingston when Moxley comes back from, you know, paternity leave and being like a baby daddy and everything and whatnot. So I think, yeah. like, it's it's the development of what they've done with their careers, um, starting from Bullet Club. And, like, if, Bullet Club are still technically everywhere. I mean, you had a variation of it. In WWE, you had AJ Styles with Gallows and Anderson as the club. You had a, a small like reunion um, when AJ was a, a last-minute fill-in. Or was it one of, one of the other with Finn or AJ was a last-minute fill-in for the other person's opponent. Um, and that was a nice wee reunion. Um, and even when um, NXT went to Japan and did Beast in the East, when that's where Finn won the NXT title, um, because that's a big place that that knew him and everyone knows him as the original Bullet Club leader. Um, so that's why I picked them as one of the top stables of the 21st Fair century. Enough. You make a big argument. There's a lot to cover. I'm thinking that maybe we, we should do a show on, on Bullet Club at this point because there's, there's so much of it to cover. Um, but Grant, Sarah talked about how Bullet Club basically permeated the entire wrestling world at a point and it was a, it was a sensation unseen since I'd argue the NWO but do you think that Bullet Club has at this point in time, they're still going, but do you think they've seen better days? Do you think that Bullet Club should slowly maybe wind down and start coming to an end? I definitely think there's there's been a lot of ups there has been a lot of downs, there's been some difficult bits with storylines and um, a uh, particular bit was kind of when Cody kind of came into things, it rejuvenated them a little bit, but then they had the Civil War, which some people, myself included, maybe felt it went a little bit too long. It could have been nailed in the head a bit earlier, but I wouldn't actually want to see them wind down. They've been going together eight years now. Um, there's definitely some things that need to be done to kind of revitalise the stable a little bit because it's got a lot of people. This is a thing like the current like the current law as Sarah was going through there. It's roughly something like about like 13, 14 people. It's a pretty big stable. Like you know, you you could actually you could split that down and probably weed some people out. But you know, they are a stable. I could also go on about day in day out because I've watched so many matches over their histories. I've I've went like deep dive to the old stuff and like how they started. I kind of think they lost a little bit of their their point when the, the elite came in because they became so popular. Didn't matter how much heels they were, people couldn't help but cheer them. They are kind of finding their way back to being heels again. Um, not you, not you, Evil. You fucked up a wee bit, but Jay, Jay White, Jay White is possibly my, became my favourite of the Bullet Club leaders that we've had so far. The, he's young. He's got so much charisma. His character works outstanding, and he can go in the ring. Well, we're going to put the switchblade aside, Grant. Thank you for your comments on that. And Scott, you know, I'm going to 
say a name here that I don't think you've ever heard of, and that's Los Ingobernares de Japón. Obviously, you won't be able to say that um, as you're not as well versed on Japanese wrestling as I am. So you might just call them L-I-J. Tell us about them. Uh, first off, I would like to apologise to Jeff Jarrett claiming that you know, his gold-selling project was a pyramid scheme. I think he refers to that model as uh, the trapezoid or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> yes, lost in Gomenables upon uh, or L-I-J, uh, to simplify it. Because uh, it's easier to just say L-I-J if I'm going to say their name repeatedly. Uh, they have a thing that most factions in, in New Japan don't really tend to have, which, built, which has been an issue with Bill Club. You talk about there being like 13, 14 members, you know, chaos. There have been fucking like dozens of them or, the, or the members over the years. Zugun's still a fairly large faction. Whereas L-I-J, you know, you currently have five members. At the most, they've had six in this ver- version, so much like Evolution, where the four people involved were specifically you know, chosen for that group. Again, LIG aren't like all the other factions where people are defected or constantly joining the group, because no one's defected to LIG. People defected from LIG, and I'll get to that in a second. But, but uh, basically, it just seems like they choose their members very, very closely. They've chosen very specific people to be part of the group. And I think a good thing about this group is it's benefited the guys involved because it's allowed different guys to, you know, reinvent themselves as part of the group. Where you've got Naito, who has been on this long documented story. I don't think I have time to go into all the details about that, but basically he went from, you know, protege of Tanahashi, the Stardust Genius he was called. He was the Roman Reigns of Japan and that everyone was like, come on, like this new baby face. And everyone was like, nah. And then he got felt better because of the way the fans rejected him. He went to... Mexico to the original Los Ingobernables uh, with one of the original members that being La Sombra aka Andrade and then that influence kind of crept in he came back you know very tranquilo and all that basically not giving a fuck about wrestling about anything he's coming out in full suits and taking his sweet time taking his suits off uh, before he wrestled you've got a funny clip of a, a G1 match in him AJ Styles where AJ's getting progressively more angry and yelling at everything. Are, 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 are we serious? Oh, now he's got to take his jacket off. Oh, oh for God's sake. Uh, <laughs> and it's like, look at this. And then that eventually took him. They went from, like, people who were seeing this belt because Naito would win a belt, but he'd drag it on the ground and throw it about. And he would pretty much broke the, the plate of the IC belt by just throwing it off the ring post. You think of but He was in the tournament to create the first ever US champion. He said, oh, yeah, if I win, I'll probably throw it in the river. Uh, eventually, he wanted to get back to the Tokyo Dome and the main event, a spot that had been robbed from him, he failed. And over time, you know, the fans actually really liked this, you know, chilled out, tranquil attitude of LIG uh, to the point where when Nigel finally did win the world title in 2020 in the Tokyo Dome, the fans were behind him. The LIG became one of the most popular factions in Japan, uh, overtaking Bullet Club in uh, the mid 2010s as most popular faction merch wise, which has seen a big deal at the time. Uh, you've got Evil, <coughs> sorry, uh, who came in, you know, this whole darkness gimmick, and he benefited from it, uh, ah, and then he, then okay. he benefited from it. Okay, don't you yeah. dare. Think, his big claim to fame for, for LIG really is the fact that he was a bastard, portrayed them, uh, left to join Bullet Club, won the title, and as soon as Naito won it back, he was seen as a, basically, he was seen as how useless as he really is, you know. But Dick Togo constantly get involved with too much stick in my life when it comes to watching an evil match. <laughs> uh, you got, got Sanada, 
Hirot Sanada, who came back from his excursion, you know, from being the, uh, you know, one of the uh, great Muay and then being the cold, still between becoming the most popular member of the faction, you know, the member that everybody wants to see get a world title run, or he's run with any single title at some point, but they seem to not want him to do that. He always comes so close. He got Hiromu, the, basically <laughs> the darling of the junior division, who also came back from his excursion to be a part baby. of the group. He's come back, from, come back from so many injuries. He's got a cat. He's got a stuffed cat over. That's how good Roma is. You got Bushi. Two. Two. There you go. And there you got Bushi. He's going to be in the end of the thing. He's got some of the best looking masks in all of wrestling right now. And then you got my boy, Shingo. Big Shingo Takagi <laughs> coming in from Dragon Gate after years of being on the ace of that promotion. Comes into LAJ, you know, runs rough shop. Get wins the never title, you know, elevates that. He's now the current IWGP World Heavyweight Champion. And that's the thing with LIJ, and that I don't think there's, a, I think there's at least been a point where at least all but one of them has gold. So, you know, not quite the all the members holding gold, but they have been multiple time champions, you know, multiple time tag teams, and I think three time tag champs uh, with, L- with Evil and Sonata, two time World Tag League winners, uh, never a open weight champion across Evil and uh, Shingo. Junior heavyweight champion Roman's won it four times. Uh, Shingo and Bushi were junior tag champs. Naito's been a five-time Intercontinental champion. You know, uh, two-time Intercontinental champion, uh, three-time world champion. You know, main event won the G1. Roman's been a two-time Best of Super Juniors winner. They've pretty much done almost everything they can do. Anything, any major tournament, any major accolade that Japan has to offer, LIG have done it. Well, I hate to say it, Scott, you've, you've been shown up with, with Mr. David Hockney with his stats there. You know, uh, clearly he fancies himself as a new Japan expert. Hey, yeah, that, that, was so a, that was grand. That was grand. Was that grand? <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> I was going to say, David, thanks for New Japan. <laughs> I was thinking to myself, like, I can't ask Dave's opinion on any of these stables in part two except his own. And then I thought it was him that came in with the six, and I was like, <laughs> Dave Hawking, doing the, 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 the Japan research. <laughs> the, only, the only reason I forgot the six is because I forgot that when Naito won the world title back from Evil, it was still when they were doing the two belts. I forgot he won the IT yeah. belt as well. Fair enough. <laughs> I, I, I would I would have remembered that Scott, but fair enough. But I'm, I'm, I'm sure you were. <laughs> I know I know Dave I know I know David Campbell was inconsolable for weeks after Evil turned on oh. uh, on LIG. I know oh, he's, he's God, the, put he's the, the caps the, put the caps ES, in that man's name. It's the ESSR Milano. That's who he is. Oh, I'm telling you, but <laughs> Grant, it's Scotland's up. You know, a lot of good points about LIG. There's someone I'm sure you had your eye on coming into this show. Anything else you want to add here? I mean, that's pretty much both my picks, but like taken before I came, I was like, ah, oh, Bill Cobb's gone. Ah, oh, you bastard from my, my fellow East Meets West co host. Really, you stealing Robin conniving. You're worse than Dick Togo. Oh, <laughs> oh don't say that. That's, that's too far, sir. You didn't I'm even give Sonada any justice there. No justice uh, for Sonada. I will, I will fight you. I will slap you, you with put a white glove. You more than you put over Sonada. Listen, listen. <laughs> I, want, I want you to calm down here before I need to pull out all right, a gun, perhaps a Suzuki gun. Grant, take it away. Right, so I'm going... <laughs> <laughs> Bang! <laughs> so I'm, I'm going back even further. LIJ's been around for about six years. Bullet Club's been around for eight. Suzuki Gun's been around for ten years. Suzuki Gun is one of the OGs one of the best and 
we've talked about the first half, we've talked about breakups. Well, this time it's a stable that came about from a betrayal when they kicked out their old leader and became who they are now. 2011, Satoshi Kojima was leading Kojima Gun, top man, loving his life, fuck his all, getting in there, I'm the champion. Then he lost it, and everything went downhill very fast from because his little partners in crime turned on him. Taichi was one of those, uh, and it was beautiful because they turned on him, and then who appeared? But Minoru Suzuki, who was a big, massive freelancer at the time, let's face it, most of us know or have at least heard of Minoru Suzuki. He's probably one of the few men in his 50s that still puts the fear of God in me. Um, like, you know, he's at 53 now. He's got a proper mixed martial arts record. And as a stable, they've had a lot of, they've had a lot of story members over the years. They've had Shelton Benjamin. I know, I almost forgot he was in it. <laughs> they've had Davy Boy Smith Jr., um, who tagged with Lance Archer as the Killer Elite Squad. Um, they've had Black Tiger for a small presence, um, but the current lineup to me is one of the best stable lineups. Minoru Suzuki as Murder Grandpa, scared the fuck. You have El Desperado, who is possibly up there with Bushi for the best masks, and he is the current IWGP Junior Champion. Um, we have Taichi, who, you know, Scott can attest me for this. When he comes out with Abby Miho, all eyes are paying attention. He's a brilliant <laughs> singer as well. Like he's a, he's a fantastic singer. Oh, uh, you know. he puts on a show. You have. Um, it says that he's still part of the stable, but we've not seen him ever since they had the big cheating scandal. But Taka Mishinoku, we all remember him from WWE back in the day, don't we? Yeah. <laughs> oh, he, he is the innovator of the the Michinoku driver, I believe. Is um, yes, he is. And he and he actually passed that move on to one of his stablemates, Zack Saber Jr., who does the Zack Driver these days. And they also have Yoshinobu Kanemaru, who is a, a junior heavyweight legend in Japan. And they also have every every stable's got to have a whipping boy. They have Doki, <laughs> which, which well, I always love to hear Gino Gambino shout about the Doki Choki. Everything, everything, missing in all of wrestling. Oh yeah, absolutely. Doki just sounds like a jobber name. Don't I? <laughs> <laughs> I can't see it's, Doki. It's ever the equivalent of Yoshihashi. Yeah, yeah. I just yeah. Like Yoshi Tatsu. And you know, <laughs> and I think what also kind of helps these guys is that like Scott ran through a lot of the accomplishments that the the Lij boys have had and Bullet Club boys have had a lot. And Suzuki-gun have also had success, not just in Japan, but outside Japan as well. Um, it's particularly Zack Sabre Jr. Um, flying the flag for British wrestling over there. Um, consistently like an outstanding performer. And unlike other members of British wrestling that went over there, doesn't cause a lot of shit on Twitter. Um, but, you know, uh, Sabre's been a PWG world champion. Um, Lance Archer and Dave Boy Smith Jr. held NWA World Tag Team Championships. Sabre also held the Evolve Championship within New Japan. The only belt that, that that team hasn't really held, which some people will make put against them, but to me it's not the worst, is they've not held the World Championship. Although I got the joy of getting to see Minoru Suzuki vs Okada in London before lockdown, and that was a belter of a match. Desperado, Desperado has taken the mantle of the the best in, in the juniors at the moment since Hiromu is injured. And, also, he's actually a really handsome bastard under that mask, as we found out when Hiromu managed to rip it off his head. Oh, yeah. They've had multiple <laughs> reigns with the Junior Tag Team Championships. 
they've had runs with the, the heavyweight tag team championships with Lance Archer and Davey Boy Smith Jr. having a good three runs with it. Sabre and Taichi under the name which I love, Dangerous Takers. <laughs> two, ta- two tag team reigns, which they're the current ones, and I've never been so conflicted because their next defence is Sonada and Naito. Um, we had a US champion in Archer. Um, the open weight championships being held by Taichi twice, by Suzuki twice. Um, tag league's been won by Archer and Suzuki. New Japan Cup by Zack Sabre Jr. You know, they have done a lot. They have always been there, and even in things like Pro Wrestling Noah, they did, they went to Pro Wrestling Noah for a couple of years. They've had they've had title reigns over there. Rev Pro in the UK, um, Suzuki's a, ta- a champion there, both as a tag champion and a singles champion. Sabre had the belt four times for Rev, Rev Pro as well. These guys are consistent, and even Suzuki's had two match of the years in Pro Wrestling Matt. And one of the in the Wrestling Observer newsletter against Tanahashi and against AJ Styles, these yeah. guys reek top level, and they've never changed in regards to the fact that they are the bastard heels. They, there's nothing to be likable about them. They beat up the young lions at ringside. They uh, one of my favourites is that they they even try and make children cry. Lance <laughs> Archer used to make children cry in the front row. That was one of the funniest things. These guys have been unmistakable in what they do. I do like that, and it's something I was going to bring up that, Sarah, perhaps you need to concede that the strength of Suzuki Gun and maybe something they might have over Bullet Club is consistency, because while we've talked about the ups and downs of Bullet Club, Suzuki Gun have been consistent since 2011, like Grant said, murder grandpa at the helm <laughs> since that time for 10 years now. You know, and they have had this clear identity that's been easy to follow. Do you think that's something that maybe backs Suzuki Gun in this part too? I mean, it definitely gives them an edge. Um, and obviously, who's going to, like, uh, in the right mind, unless you're, you know, crazy or um, a deathmatch wrestler, are you going to fuck with Minoru Suzuki? Because, let's just face it, even at his head stage... He is one of the most terrifying people in all of wrestling, not even just in Japan, just in wrestling in general. Right? There'd be not a lot of people that want to go up against him, obviously. The, the we, We've seen him be a murder grandpa um, and obviously taken over from Kojima. It, it gave them revitalization. It's like Suzuki-gun. You're like, that, that sounds like a good name. It sounds like a really good name. And the fact that like they've not had a million and one members, <laughs> and because but I think the thing that whole the whole Bullet Club thing is it just got so big in popularity that that's what attracted it to other people. Whereas obviously Suzuki Gun they stand for the same thing of just being dickheads, um, and just well in Zack Saber Zack Saber Junior's case, just being a wrestling bastard. And just, you know, fuck over everybody. It's like, put on a wrestling match, I'll, I'll show you what real wrestling is, right? If anyone, like, Scott, this is your answer. Zack Sabre Jr. is what real wrestling is, right? That is wrestling. I'd, I'd like to add three three little minor, minor quick points. One, Suzuki's current, current partner in real life is also Miko Satamura, so that's an ultimate power couple right there. Yep. Two, yeah. two. Um, yeah. Suzuki has actually had proper matches with Asuka back in the day, and some of the clips, like, she wanted Suzuki to go full out, and it's oh, terrifying. I really need to see that match. <laughs> like so much. Send me that over. Oh my god! And three, 
And three, right. Zach Saber Jr. has a, a has blamed his losses in the past at times on Boris Johnson. <laughs> that is a fucking British way. <laughs> well, I'd like Couple. I'd like to see case closed, but I'm afraid we need to go over to Ed, Delta, Alpha, Victor, India, Delta, David. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And I think, yeah, I think you've and, got the phonetic alphabet. <laughs> <laughs> no, I did very well with that, actually. But um, yeah, on a more serious note, I need to write the injustice that was the first half. And Serious note? On a more serious... <laughs> you trying to say that our stables from Japan are not serious? Oh, no, 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 no. They, they are serious. But uh, And you guys all put forward excellent arguments. So I'm going to have an uphill struggle with this one here. Uh, but yeah, I think we, ha- we can't have... Uh, a, a show about the best stables of the of the 21st century without talking about one of the best things that WWE's produced in the last 10 years and that is of course the the stable of Dean Ambrose, Seth Rollins and Roman Reigns aka The Shield. Now this was at a time where I think wrestling was sort of going through a bit of a transitional period particularly WWE as a whole because the year prior you had the summer of punk which you know, it sort of brought a whole new dimension, like a, almost like a reality era of WWE instead of just sort of bursting the, the WWE bubble and sort of kicking down the fourth wall. Like, it needed something a bit more edgy, something a bit more, uh, I, w- I wouldn't say controversial, but something that goes against WWE's traditional sort of PG norms. And Survivor Series 2012 was definitely one of those major turning points when you had three... Uh, three guys from FCW slash NXT, because remember it was still going through a bit of uh, a growing period at that time. They come in dressed in all black, well, turtleneck specifically, but luckily they didn't keep those around. And they they run roughshod uh, over guys like CM Punk, John Cena and Ryback in the WWE title picture. So that's making a statement right there to say these three guys who are unknown mainly to the sort of main roster WWE audience, these guys are coming in and they're gonna cause a storm. And nobody's really sort of provided that much of an impact back when sort of I'd say the Nexus did it in 2010. And it's only about a year and a half later where it literally took less than half the guys to make just a more impactful statement. That's how you know these guys, you know, are ones to watch. and. Ambrose, Rollins and Reigns, you know, they came through WWE's developmental stage. They were all part of FCW. Uh, they had times on NXT, like Seth Rollins, obviously the, the inaugural NXT champion. So they already had some accolades sort of under their wing. But it, their first match as well was a tables, ladders and chairs match. Sort of uh, a makeshift match because obviously CM Punk got injured at the time. And I don't think anybody expected to be to go down in history as one of the best TLC matches in history that wasn't for a title or anything suspended above a ladder. Like in the space of one night, these guys showed that they are the complete package when it comes to different wrestling styles. You've got Ambrose with his wild brawler tactics. You've got Seth Rollins, who's the the calculating architect technician of the of the group, and then of course you've got the big beefy Roman Reigns with his power and his muscles and his deceptively uh, quick uh, speed so and the sheer brutality of the TLC just put that shown that in the best light especially against sort of three upper mid card main event talents like uh, Ryback and Team Hell No so you knew these guys you know they were off to a flying star and just when you thought you know they wouldn't 
you know, they get a couple of big wins here and there, and they go up against a team of Cena, Sheamus, and Ryback at Fastlane. Everybody thought they were going to lose that because, you know, it's Cena wins lol. They end up getting the win in a relatively clean fashion. And then that's where you think, okay, these guys, they're not playing around with these guys. These guys are going to get pushed to the moon. Like, they got their win at WrestleMania as well. And that undefeated streak continued for another six months right up until June 2014 on SmackDown, where they lost a sort of makeshift tag team with Team Hell No and Randy Orton. But just to just put into perspective, like, who these guys defeated during that time frame, they defeated The Undertaker in that time frame with the, the, six, with the Team Hell No at the same time. So they went through Team Hell No a lot of the times, but with rotating partners. And when you realize The Undertaker was one of them, it really sort of hammered home, right? These guys can handle with some of, you know, the best guys that the business has to offer. But going into their sort of, in themselves as a group, they have a, a very unique entrance. You know, they don't traditionally come down the ramp. They actually come through the crowd. And it's been a while since we've actually seen a stable, you know, make their entrance by coming through the crowd. And it sort of ties in with their character as well. You know, they're sort of mercenaries. They're like riot control, you know, you wouldn't expect them to enter in a traditional format. You'd expect them to to literally push their way past a crowd and come down as if they were like a an actual, you know, a riot squad, like with batons and riot shields ready to stir shit up. And there was even a pitch at one point to have that actually come out with riot shields, but I think that would just, you know, demean the, the whole group. So I'm glad they didn't go with that. Uh, but they had some incredible title reigns as well. Like Dean Ambrose is still recorded as the longest reigning United States champion in WWE, even though he hasn't, even though he didn't defend it for a good chunk of the time. But still, the record's there. Then you've obviously got Seth Rollins, inaugural NXT champion, the first Money in the Bank winner, the first to win the WWE title out of the group. So he was definitely put on a pedestal when they sort of separated. But then you've got Roman Reigns as well, who's main evented four straight WrestleManias from 2015 to 2018 and only one other person could say they've done that and that's Hulk Hogan so you knew that these guys were already main event level talent you know whichever way they ended up whether they stuck as a stable or they would break off as individuals so and breaking them off as individuals this is what WWE's done so well with them you know they they were so highly regarded as such a strong faction they were able to a couple of the, a couple of years later actually cement these guys as three of the three of the absolute best that WWE has to offer. You have multiple time world champions. They're all Grand Slam champions as well. They're all Triple Crown champions. So they've basically done everything that WWE has to offer. And when you look at Roman Reigns right now as the tribal chief, you know, you can see how far he's grown over the last 10 years. You know, he's the, the muscle man of the shield. He's the next breakout star. He gets then put on this pedestal, which most people outright reject for years. But now he's finally in a position where I think the fans will absolutely adore him for the position that he's in. He's become what I think they, not just what they've wanted him to be, but also this is his evolution over the years. And, you know, Rollins as well, he's he's had a quite a few character changes over time. You know, he's been the golden boy of the authority. He's been uh, the king slayer, the beast slayer, and he's now wandering around. He's happiness in wrestling. Is oh, for God's sake. Okay. Uh, the, way, the weakest knee in wrestling, you mean? Well, perhaps that as well, but well, let's discuss the most important parts of his anatomy, please, Dan. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> and now he's going around the Sethi drip drip with all these smashing outfits and his sort of evangelical phase at the stage. But I think it's fair to say, you know, Ambrose maybe got the short straw out of all three of them, but that was mainly in WWE and his booking was... Uh, 
was a little bit flustered. But he's doing great in AEW at the minute. He was the second ever AEW champion. And he's now got a strong partnership with Eddie Kingston around the tag title scene. So he's surely while his stock sort of plummeted in WWE, he's now bounced back as a standalone figure in AEW. But um, I, I, I appreciate, you know, there's going to be some questions about this, but they didn't have as much longevity as compared to some of the other stables we've discussed because they only were around for about uh, 18 months or so. Oh, that's an eternity in WWE, dude. That's uh, yeah, yeah. That's longevity. That's longevity. That's, long, that's longevity. That's longevity. Well, yeah, in WWE, it does feel like an eternity. So, um, but when when everybody was when everybody was trying to uh, when everybody was trying to talk about you know when are they going to get back together? Will they have a reunion and stuff? They did re- they did reunite on three separate occasions, but the only hiccup was you know it was real life got in the way. Like in 2017, you know Ambrose suffered an injury, then Roman was out with his. Uh, his meningitis uh, diagnosis, and I think that affected a good chunk of the roster. Then, obviously, in 2018, Reigns had his leukemia re-diagnosis as well, so he was away for a good chunk of time. And then in 2019, Ambrose's contract runs out. So, yeah, I mean, they could have definitely had a strong reunion run because they were all in excellent positions at the time. But it was, yeah, I think it was just bad luck that sort of let them down towards the end. But aside from that, you can't take away how much they accomplished in that short 18 months. And I think... They will go down as one of WWE's best creations uh, in the Shield. I think Scott Dave brings up some great points here about the Shield. Like Evolution, they did what they were meant to do. They created three main event players in WWE. However, he brings up those reunion runs. Perhaps because the job was already done, a reunion wasn't necessarily needed for the Shield at any point. Yeah, I mean, and it's weird to call it a reunion when the first reunion happens in 2017. And they broke up in 2014. It's really hard. It's weird to be nostalgic or something that was old, that ended three years, only three years earlier. So, like, it's, like it's barely had enough time to properly like be gone. And like I forgot to mention Evolution's like second run, but like their second run's main purpose was to get a shield over, which it did. Uh, they beat them twice on pay per view, and then made it even more shocking when the, the night after their second win, uh, the shield lost because the shield like broke up. Because they're out, they're broke up on a high. Nobody was expecting, especially were expecting Rollins to be the one to break up the group. But I would argue, as I was trying to say, when they was in all the only for eighteen months. Yeah, but then you add on the, the reunion run that they were on, which you know, it really like it was people weren't really popping that much for the sealed music because they heard it for the last three years as Roman's music, which is one of the reasons people rejected Roman, and that they basically gave him the shield, they kept the shield gimmick on him. While trying to make him his own like breakout star, and like those two regimes, I think really devalued the Shield because like, oh yeah, the Shield are back. You like the Shield, like yeah, I did in 2014, but you know you're really forcing that now. And then like Ambrose get injured. Oh well, Ambrose is back now. Shield again. Like I-, I wasn't really clamoring for the Shield. I was fine with it the last two times you gave me it. And then they give you it after even after Ambrose did that heel turn, which admittedly went downhill fast when suddenly he was like. Oh, get away from me! I need a mask. But you know, in twenty twenty, he'd be the most overface in the he's world. V- he's a visionary. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, you can see the future. But and then they did that one last raid, and basically used Corbin, Lashley, and uh, Drew as basically fall guys for the Shield for like a month, month and a half, so they could then promote that live, glorified live event on the network. So they really rinsed that out for all it was worth. Till it really wasn't. We weren't really as excited to see them as a trio by the end of it. 
Yeah, a good initial run. Blacklist for reunion. This should be a tight one here. We're going to go to the vote. And Scott, going to give you the first vote here. Who are you going to go for? Oh, you had to count me first, didn't you? Of course. <laughs> Let's see. Uh, now, I don't think initially I would have seen myself voting for this group. No, I don't like this group. But I don't think I would have initially thought of them. But he's made some really good arguments, I think, for why each member you know, adds you know, a lot to the group and what they've accomplished. So uh, I also can't kind of make up the fact that I took one of his options. I'll say Suzuki Gun, Ichiban. Suzuki Gun, oh, fucking Grandpa <laughs> Wrestling. Sarah Green, come to you. Who um, will your vote go to? Um, I think I think for me, um, just because this the stable stuck to basically what they are intended to do, as in they don't abide by any rules. Um. And the fact that they have my boy Hiromu, um, I'm gonna go with uh, Lost and Gun and Ablis to hop on. Yeah, no, like, I like you said, both have to have voted for me. You understand, you get it, you get it. <laughs> <laughs> we are going to come to David Hockney. Yeah, I think I'm gonna go with the one that's actually been around for that length of time, that it's almost become embroiled in the sort of wrestling universe. like. It almost feels like a brand in itself, but it isn't, kind of, if you get what I mean. And it has, I think, it has a ton of merch being sold, you know, all across the world. And I think for that, and, you know, they're continuous incarnations and simply, you know, they've been one of the most recognisable names in any promotion. I'm going to have to say Bullet Club. Now it comes down to this. The exercise for less Jesus, Grant McRobbie. <laughs> to make the final decision of this contest. Grant, over to you, sir. So I'm pondering this one very difficultly as I look at my my signed all-in canvas <laughs> with the picture of Cody in the box from all-in when they were still that Bullet Club style thing. I look at my picture with Cody with that wonderful US belt and then I look up to my, my dreamboat, me and Sonata. It's going to be LIJ, of course. <laughs> Los Ingobernables de Japón. Los Ingobernables de Japón wins it. LIJ takes the second half, which means a double victory on this show for Scott McLeod. Two sables, two victories. It's a, it's a, it's a great day for you, Scott. How are you feeling? Oh, my double gold. <laughs> Like Naito <laughs> after Wrestle Kingdom 14. Oh, and, I, and I know some of you may be disappointed about uh, not having your either your factions come on top, but if you're feeling angry, all I can say is tranquilo. Yeah. You Very say you like you say it's like the Naito moment, but no one wanted this. This is the evil one in the double gold moment. Can I just point out as well, most of our responses on our community page post have actually either said Undisputed Era or Bullet Club. That's just I think oh. just more for popularity and that they're more well known. Um, unless you're a fan of New Japan, you're not gonna really know who Suzuki Gun is or Lost in Gardenables. Be honest, none I, of know the evil ones, I know evil ones. I know evil ones. That's because me, you're part of this podcast, David. Allow <laughs> me to address those filthy marks of the ESSR universe that just Uh-oh. go over the popular choices. Mm-hmm. Yeah, get it, Ringies. Would be me. And I want to thank my panel for being on today. First off, Scott McLeod, thank you. 
Uh, I thank you, Dave. But uh, Grant, if you ever compare me to Evil again, I will drop you quicker than Evil dropped Naito at the end of the New Japan Cup. <laughs> and a, th- a thank you to Mr. Grant McRobbie. Thank you. It's been a pleasure, and Scott. Me and you, me and you will talk about this on East meets West. You can, you, you, you have shit the bed, son. Oh, East will meet West indeed, one on one. Sarah, thank you very much. When are we getting Alba Grant's back? Is it going to happen? Um, if Scottish wrestling ever happens again, then it will come back. But um, Grant, Scott, if one of you kill the other, I'm more than happy to step in as co-host of East meets well, West. Well, Sarah, let's calm the fuck down. I will bring job. I will bring Daryl to every meeting. All right. <laughs> you can help me. You can also help me bury the body when I'm done. The, the temptation and to actually get David Campbell involved just so I can see. Like I'm going to like make a drinking game every time he mispronounces a name. I've got to take a shot and I'll be miraculous. <laughs> 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 You'll never have enough damage. Um, but uh, once again, thank you to Mr. David Hockney. I will see you on Saturday, sir. I will see you on Saturday. And bear in mind. Any more on justice like that in the first half, and you're getting a last shot. No, you're not. So scared. Next, next week will be the end of this podcast, um, unfortunately. <laughs> um, as they discuss the worst, uh, one of the worst angles in wrestling, they're talking about the invasion pay per view. But also, Andy Mitchell is back. Yeah, so it's bad news for us all. Until then, see you later on. <laughs> I am Jack Graham. I am Scott McLeod. And I'm David Hockney. And you can catch us hosting one of the greatest shows in the history of podcasts, Saturday Draft Live. You can tune in every Saturday to find out who on the ESSR has the best chance of winning the current season of our Fantasy Draft. As always, you can catch Saturday Draft Live on all good podcasting platforms. <laughs>